Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, why the Olympics just aren't what they used to be, and the enduring fascination with Benifer. All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So, a thing you all should know about me is that growing up, I was a big, big fan of the Olympics. When I was a kid, the Olympics felt larger than life. I remember every Olympics, winter and summer, I would turn on NBC, which was Channel 4 in South Texas back then, and I would watch everything. I can recall watching the USA men's basketball team in 92, a.k.a. the Dream Team. I can recall watching Carrie Strug land her vault event and bring it home for the U.S. women's gymnastic team with an injured ankle in 96. I remember watching Michelle Kwan figure skate in 98 and 02. Ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Kwan. And Jackie Joyner Kersey running so fast, getting all those medals. And in 08, I can recall Michael Phelps dominating swimming in Beijing. History in Beijing for Michael Phelps. Heck, I even remember Bob Costa's pink eye in Sochi in 2014. I woke up this morning with my left eye swollen shut and just about as red as the old Soviet flag. But this year's Olympics in Tokyo, they felt a bit off to me, a little disconnected, and I've been watching less. To be fair, the fact that we are in a global pandemic hasn't helped at all. But these are still just not the Olympics that I have remembered and loved so dearly in the past. And I am not the only one feeling this way. I would give it a C plus. That is Matt Brennan. He's a TV editor at the LA Times. Even identifying what time and what platform a given event is on requires a level of research and dedication that would probably limit how many people would be involved in it. That was another problem for me. I am a grown adult, and yet I've had trouble figuring out whether I should use Peacock or one of the gazillion other NBC platforms to watch the Olympics. And if I was looking for a certain specific sport at a certain time, forget about it. Well, I can give you an example from my own viewing. Um, It took me about 20 minutes even to figure out what time of day and where the opening ceremony was airing. Wait, the opening ceremonies? That should be like the thing that... (laughs) Well, because of the time difference, the opening ceremony actually aired twice. It aired live in the Today Show's time slot uh, when it was happening live in Tokyo. But then it also aired in prime time in tape delay later that night. So it aired around 4 a.m. Pacific on Friday the 23rd and 4.30 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 23rd. And for a television editor trying to figure out an answer to the question from the higher-ups, how are we covering the opening ceremonies? That presents a challenge because I was like, well, which version of the opening ceremonies are we going to cover? And I think that that kind of is an indication of the greatest challenge that you're identifying here is one of the time difference. The last time that the Olympics were held in a time zone roughly similar to this time difference uh, was Beijing in 2008. Even in 2008, we're talking about a very different media landscape where you could conceivably wake up in the morning, 
go about your day, even on the internet, and not be bombarded with information about who won and who lost so that you could sit down at 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. and be coming to the swimming or the track or the gymnastics cold. And that was even more true in 2000 or 1998 when the internet was uh, less fully developed. But now it's like I know beforehand that my favorite athletes either didn't make it or dropped out, so why am I going to watch later? Well, and ultimately there's no real workaround now. I suppose you could go to the beach or on a long mountain hike and just not look at and avoid the any internet. kind of internet all day. But practically speaking, I mean, uh, I woke up to an Apple News alert on my phone that Simone Biles had withdrawn from the team gymnastics competition and that the women's U.S. team had finished second at about 7 a.m. Pacific time. So fully 12 hours before it was going to air on television. And my first reaction was... So then why are you going to watch? Exactly. So what are the challenges that NBC is facing trying to turn this juggernaut they have paid billions of dollars to televise into the kind of success that it has been in the past? And I think the answer is it's not coming back. Yeah. Well, and, you know... You are talking about the experience of watching primetime Olympic coverage on NBC, but all indicators show that there are fewer and fewer people like you doing that. You know, the latest ratings from NBC show an average total audience of 16.8 million viewers watching not just across the network's cable uh, channels, but also streaming. So altogether, that's a 40 percent decline from the Rio Games in 2016. How big of a deal is that? It seems massive. It seems like there's no way that NBC can spin that into a good number. Well, the way that they could spin it into a good number is by looking at it not relative to 2016, but looking at it relative to 2021. Hmm. The first week, the average nightly rating of of even the primetime broadcast is the most watched primetime show of the year since the Super Bowl. Okay. So if the point of comparison is 2016, 2012, 2008, and then the the moments that we're sort of nostalgic for since you're around the same age as I am, I'm thinking about 96, 2000, 2004, when it was like you couldn't walk into – you know, a bar and grill restaurant without having the Olympics on every oh, yeah. TV screen. In oh, it. yeah. That is over. That's never coming back. But that's over for everything. Are you sad about that as someone who watches TV for a living? I have very complicated emotional <laughs> response okay. to this question. Tell so. me all of them. <laughs> Tell me all the complicated emotions. So on the one hand, it does bum me out. Uh, when we covered uh, The Last Dance, the ESPN docuseries, when it premiered sort of at the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown on ESPN. And everybody watched it together, it felt like. Yes. And I wrote a piece about how both the show itself, because it was set in this sort of like Seinfeldian 90s Jordan's Bulls monocultural moment. Oh, yeah. And the fact that we're all in lockdown recaptured that sort of nostalgia that we have for like that feeling of literally everyone is talking about the same thing. You know, there isn't necessarily one national conversation anymore about anything. Yeah, even the Olympics, which kind of makes me sad. Yeah, it does make me sad. But you have to think as well, I think, about the drawbacks of the era in which there was just one national conversation. What was the drawback? Well, I think that it limits what that conversation can be about. 
Mm. I think that you would not see some of the conversations that we've had around the controversies leading into the games, whether it was about the decision to ban Shikari Richardson for marijuana use, or whether the ban on swimming caps for black hair is racist, or whether the Olympics are healthy for host cities and countries to host. I don't remember that being a driving force of the conversation around the Olympics in the years that we're talking about. No, it was just boosterism. It was just like America, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, and I think it also is contributing to some of what we're seeing with the conversation around athletes' mental health. So many people were watching the Olympics that success in the Olympics is what created the stars. Now, in order to get people to watch the Olympics, the stars have to be created ahead of time. Mm. And so what you see is an immense amount of promotion around the big name contenders heading into the Olympics. Simone Biles, top of the list this time. Yeah, you know... These Olympics and the ratings drop of like 40% compared to Rio in 2016, some of that is a reality uh, that is happening for all of TV. All terrestrial TV ratings are down massively as people shift to streaming. But, you know, besides that dip affecting even the Olympics, how much of that ratings drop is just due to what I guess we could call a very unlucky Olympics. There's so many things that have gone wrong with these games. I mean, there's a pandemic and a host city that actually didn't want to host the games because of the pandemic. You know, you also had American superstar athletes who were expected to perform really well, either not doing well or dropping out. There are other things, you know, the Shikari Richardson weed scandal, issues over what women athletes can wear, a ban on athletes' activism, Like, how much of the ratings drop is just due to, like, an unlucky, problem-ridden games and not the larger story of streaming taking over terrestrial TV? I'm not sure I could give you a a percentage without, frankly, bullshitting you. But (laughs) I would say less than what you may think. Mm. The way to think of it, I think, is this way. If you were to even be kind of lightly interested in this year's Olympics— What has changed the most since the years that we're talking about is not that there are no sort of surprising upsets or, you know, disappointments. What has changed the most is that on a given night in 2021, you can, instead of tuning into the Olympics, watch almost every movie or television series ever made on some kind of streaming platform. The competition in 2000 was like a rerun of CSI. I just don't think it's an equivalent competition. Mm. I just think that ultimately, Mm. when people then sit down to sort of make the assessment of what do I watch tonight, it's so much easier for them to say, eh, maybe I'll just like catch up on The White Lotus. Alrighty, Matt, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Sam. Of course. Uh, Next time you come on, we'll just talk about The White Lotus. Um, I have plenty of material so (laughs) just let me know where and when thanks again to matt brennan television editor at the la times all right coming up we talk about the loss of another kind of monoculture the celebrity power couple but as we've discussed pretty much weekly on this show one of them perhaps the only one that matters is back benifer (laughs) 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Culturel. IBS symptoms can be tough to manage with diet alone. Culturel IBS Complete Support is a medical food for the dietary management of IBS, designed to relieve the intensity and reduce the frequency of severe digestive symptoms associated with all IBS subtypes. Save 20% on IBS Complete Support with promo code RADIO on Culturel.com. Or for occasional digestive issues, try Culturel Probiotic Supplements. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Monday.com. If you're drowning in work instead of steering the ship, you know there's got to be a better way. With Monday.com WorkOS, your team can choose how your workflow looks. That way, you can stay on top of your work and say goodbye to work overload. Over 125,000 customers get more out of their workday with Monday.com. So if you want your team to be more effective than ever, visit Monday.com slash podcast for your free two-week trial. There are arrowheads in the walls. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. And for our special series this month, the best of Throughline. You know, if we carry on as we have been, this is what we might wind up with. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And right now, we're going to talk about one of the biggest stories of 2021. Breaking, what? breaking, breaking news. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are back together. They're on no! vacation. They are on vacation <laughs> with each other right now. J-Lo and Ben Affleck, they got back together earlier this year. The reunion made headlines across the world. No one could resist, it seems. A story about the return of a power couple that was last together almost two decades ago. It's 2004 all over again. Throw me in a velour tracksuit that says juicy across the butt and vote Carrie Edwards because I'm all in for Benefer. Their love story began way back then in a time where both stars were on the rise, the early 2000s. And as they ascended, so did the tabloid press. And it wasn't kind to them. You know, we went through a really rough time in the press and things like that back in the day. And so I really felt The like huge that. amount of media attention and the flop of their movie, Gili, didn't help their budding romance. Ben and Jen were engaged, and then they weren't. Since then, these two have had kids, gone through marriages and divorces. And up until recently, they were both happily coupled with other people. Ben with Anna de Armas. And J-Lo, she was engaged to A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. But then J-Rod, let's call it that, they went through a series of breakups and makeups and press statements and bizarre posts. On A-Rod's Instagram, he'd made this like basically a shrine to her <laughs> with photos of the both of them, photos of her. Um, and he he was playing, yes, a Coldplay song. I think it was Fix You. It was Fix You, the saddest Coldplay song. I spoke with two culture writers about how Benefer version 2.0 has taken the world at least my world, by storm, and how celebrity culture has changed since their first time together. I'm Hunter Harris. I am a freelance writer based in New York, and I write a twice-weekly pop culture newsletter called Hung Up. I'm Alessa Dominguez, and I'm a culture writer for BuzzFeed News. I'm so excited to talk about one of my favorite topics in the world, which is uh, Benefer. How big of a deal is them getting back together? Like, when it happened... I was surprised by how consumed I was with it and how much I wanted to know about it and how big of a deal I thought it was. They're putting in the work. They're like making this into the biggest story of the summer, um, both 
in ways that I think are planned, like, I mean, her Instagram photo slide of like, you know, bikini pick, bikini pick, and then finally her kissing Ben Affleck, but also just in ways that are so like unintentional, like the video of, or the photo of him leaving her house with like this very smug smile. Yeah. Like there's so many ways that I think that these two people specifically and um, in a very unique way are performing like a very private relationship. And I think that's like very satisfying to people. Yeah. Well, and it feels like they're doing the performance of coupledom in a way that is not as thirsty as like the average influencer. Am I right in thinking that? Like they're not like other celebrities right now. They don't have to do as much of the work because people are already invested. And basically, I think that the that the Jenny from the Block remake pictures are literally just that she was sort of taking them for her Instagram. And the fact that that kind of broke Twitter and broke the internet and everyone was like, oh, look at this meta performance. It's kind of like, it's, it's like the odds nostalgia is doing a lot of the work here. So um, they get to kind of seem effortless in it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and we should tell our listeners who weren't just plugged into the internet, that photo situation, uh, there was an iconic image from her Jenny from the Block video where she's like in a bikini and Ben Affleck is like touching her butt. Don't be fooled by the rocks that I got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the Block. And just a few weeks ago, the two of them, and I don't know if it was planned or not, they kind of recreated the same image. How surprised were both of you when you saw them in the last few months getting back together? Um, I was not really surprised. I mean, the A-Rod thing was, it always seemed kind of doomed from the start to me just because... Really? He, I thought it was real love. Same. I thought it was real love, but I just think A-Rod is a fool and he does foolish things. Um, <laughs> no, but then after, after, when it seemed like that relationship was like kind of on its way out, I started thinking, I actually was like drafted a list of who I thought she would date next. And at the top of the list was Ben Affleck. And then also on the list was, like, really? Drake and maybe someone, like, completely random, like, some business mogul or something. Um, I love that you made a list. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I Well, yeah, because I just, you know, it seemed like Ben Affleck just went, you know, randomly was like, oh, and, you know, J-Lo is still so great and J-Lo is still so cool and J-Lo withstood a lot of racist criticism that I don't think um, we would be, that people would be so proud of to look back on now, like on podcasts. Um, he even like blurbed her in style cover story. Um, and it was just- Wait, really? It was like an oral history of JLo. And Ben Affleck pops up in the story saying, you know, JLo is so great and she's such an icon and how does she never age? I was like, wow. I wonder. And it turns out, yeah. So he was trying to get in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hearing you talk about that, that's a little bit thirsty. Alessa, do you think that's a good way to catch somebody? I think the thing about JLo, honestly, is that, like, there's something about her where she's so on all the time that it transcends thirst or desperation. Like, it's kind of like she's all, like, for instance, when she redid her green dress moment and, like, people stood up to clap, I was like, yes. Like, I rooted for her. And I feel like if it was somebody else, it would have been like, oh, get over it. It's been 20 she years. She got a round of applause and a standing ovation for putting on a dress. Yeah. There's something about her that she can really, like, she makes celebrity in a weird way seem kind of magical. And she's always been very open about a lot of, about a lot of her life in a weird way. She was like a proto-Kardashian. I think to that point, that's also why I, I was thinking about like, okay, so why do people root for JLo in a way that they don't for others? And why can we kind of revel in this odds nostalgia with her in a way that maybe other celebrities you can? And it's like, because she 
is so kind of in control of the narrative that she doesn't like, you know what I mean? Jennifer Aniston got kind of boxed into this kind of narrative of forlornness. Like she was waiting for Brad Pitt or whatnot. But like with JLo, it's like she moved on so quickly to Mark Anthony that like she's just always keeping it going. And it's almost <laughs> like Ben became just one you know, she, he almost became to me like a, a stand-in for like white America's fascination with J-Lo. And it's kind of like, okay, and now we're done and we're moving on. Um, she's so, <laughs> she just kind of like always keeps, keeps it going. And I think it makes it so that like, that's, I think that's a big part of like why people like root for her. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny to hear you mention Ben Affleck's whiteness because so much of the coverage of the first wave of J-Lo and Ben in like 04 whenever it was, it was really obsessed with how different these two were. You know, they would euphemistically talk about it in these magazines. Yeah. Such a such a strange match. <laughs> such a unique match. They're so different from each other. And what everyone wanted to say but couldn't say was like, he's white. Yes. And she's not. Yeah. <laughs> Do y'all think that weird fascination is still present today or are we over that hopefully <laughs> well i think part of what was funny is that in retrospect again i didn't think about this at the time exactly in these terms but it's like j-lo was in some ways like a new kind of latina celebrity like i think a lot of latinx celebrity which is as we know like sort of an invented american category is about like a kind of exotic foreignness so you have like arab latinas like salma hayek or shakira but Jayla was kind of like this homegrown new yorkian again hip-hop adjacent kind of star and I had forgotten how that kind of like shaped the reception of like, cause even Ben Affleck said afterwards, like we were thought of as different people, not just culturally, but racially. And I was like, oh my God, look at Ben sounding like a cultural studies major. Come on. <laughs> but he, he was right. And I think that it's so funny and coded in retrospect. Oh yeah. And she's always been someone who, even if she didn't talk about this racial dance she had to do, she lives it and you can see it in her work. Her music sounds very black and very uh, a Latino. Her movies seem very white. At least they did for the first part of her career. And she's always walked this weird line of race and has been kind of a chameleon in what she puts on. So to see her in that moment, you know, gravitate towards the white guy from Boston, it was something. It was something. Mm -hmm. I've started calling celebrities like Jennifer Lopez, and there's just a small handful now, I, I consider them like imperial celebrities. And they came at this moment of peak celebrity. And there was a moment in time when couples like Ben and J-Lo or Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt, they were American royalty. And we all were obsessed with their ins and outs. And they were celebrities to the point of being on a first name basis with all of us. And they didn't have to work too hard for our attention. We just cared about them. And I think that we really only have a handful of imperial celebrities left, larger-than-life celebrities, one of them being J-Lo, maybe also still Angelina Jolie, maybe Jennifer Aniston, but it's just a few. I mean, Oprah, perhaps. And I think in general, we care about celebrities less these days, and the new crop of celebrities have to work a lot harder just to be noticed. And so as much as I'm excited about the return of Benifer and Ben and J-Lo together, I'm also reminded that that moment of peak celebrity, imperial celebrity, maybe that's kind of overall behind us for good. I don't know. Do y'all feel that way? It makes me sad if that's the case. Thinking about that, I think about something Alessa said earlier, which is that J-Lo really does share a lot of her personal life in a way that more celebrities today don't. Like, we don't hear from Beyonce unless she has an album that she wants us to listen to. Like, we we don't ever really see her life until there's a photo dump, which is, like, a week after whatever holiday she's celebrating. And I really do love that. <laughs> but I do think that, like, there is something unique about J-Lo, about 
you know, to some extent, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie or George Clooney or, you know, Tom Cruise-ish, where it's like they do actually share a lot of their lives with us or there is enough mystery to keep us wondering about their lives, like what's actually going on. Um, And that level of intrigue and also openness is not really easily mimicked and a lot of people don't, you know, strike that same balance. I think a lot of it is that JLo and Ben are pretty open um, which yeah. lets us continue to be interested. It keeps us kind of in their pocket in a way. And it's like, if you're not willing to, you know, give us a look behind the curtain, then it's like, well, what are we waiting for? I think also that a lot of the, I mean, I'm also kind of sometimes, and again, <laughs> I don't want to date myself, but I'm also nostalgic for that kind of monocultural celebrity. But then I do remember that a lot of these sort of, um, you can't sort of think about the nostalgia without thinking about, all the voices that were kind of left out because like there was such an emphasis Mm. on sort of white cis hetero romance at the center of all that. And people Mm. who, people who couldn't participate in that basically couldn't be celebrities. Well, there were no gay power couples in that moment. There were no, like you would never obsess over a Benefer if it was like two men or two women. Exactly. So it's like on the one hand, that kind of monocultural thing gave everyone a chance to talk about certain kinds of things, I think, but it also was very limited about who got that kind of attention. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about monoculture as it connects to and relates to JLo and Ben, because the other part of this show, talking about the Olympics, we discussed how the Olympics have suffered because of a loss of this sense of monoculture. You know, we are losing the monoculture as the internet and media fragmentation lets us all see whatever we want on our own terms there's nothing to connect us. And so part of, I think, our obsession collectively with JLo and Ben getting back together, it is a throwback to the monoculture. And it is a throwback to this moment in which we all watched the same thing at the same time. And I think a big part of us collectively misses that. That's all I got. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I think you, that sounds right to me. Same. On that note, we're going to take a break. Hunter, Alessa, thank you so much for being here, talking about, in my opinion, the biggest story of the year, Benefer 2.0. Uh, if y'all stick around, after the break, we'll play a game called Who Said That? Is that cool? Yeah. Yes. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Audioboom. In Case File presents new podcast, The Invisible Hand. Host Georgina Savage returns to her birth country of South Africa, where her cousin's family fight on the front lines of a conservation war against rhino poaching. Go behind the headlines as she immerses herself in the lives of individuals connected to the illegal trade in an attempt to understand the personal circumstances of those entangled in a crisis. The Invisible Hand is available now on your favorite podcast app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from CarMax. Whether you want to buy your next car online, on the lot, or at home, our friends at CarMax have you covered. Because at CarMax, the best way to buy a car is your way. Shop thousands of CarMax certified quality vehicles at CarMax.com. Buy online and choose from curbside pickup or home delivery in select markets. Then take a full month and up to 1,500 miles to love it or return it. That's car shopping the way it should be at CarMax. Learn more at CarMax.com. All right, now we're going to play a game that is not about, I'm sorry, J-Lo and Ben. It's about other stuff. It's called Who Said That? Ooh, Who said that? Uh, you want to play? Yes. Yeah. 
The game is really simple. I share a quote from the week of news. You got to tell me who said it. Uh, there are no buzzers. There are no timers. Just yell out the answer as soon as you think you have it. Uh, I'll keep score, but I'm bad at keeping score. But it doesn't matter because there's no prize for winning or losing. Okay? Yes. Okay. Here's the first quote. I do not use slurs of any kind. To be as clear as I can be, I stand with the LGBTQ plus community. Who said that? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yes, that's a tie. <laughs> and my team wrote beneath that, this is not the baby. <laughs> this is Matt Damon. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Born Identity, Matt Damon, um, one of y'all break down the story for me because there's layers to it and like iterations. What happened here? Please tell me. Okay. Matt Damon is promoting his movie, which is kind of based on the Amanda Knox um, trial and saga. And while he's promoting this movie, he gave an interview to, I believe, the Sunday Times, where he said that he made a joke a few months ago and his daughter called him out on the joke and called him out on using the F slur. And he was like, it was a real like come to Jesus moment for him. He, you know, thought about how, yes, she's right. I should not be using this word. Um, and then as the internet was sort of digesting that he would admit to using this slur, he came out after baby, of course, and said, <laughs> I've never used a slur in my life. Um, and then I've seen a um, GQ profile of him, I think from like 2007, in which during the profile, he uses the F slur. Um, huh. So it's just demonstrably false. But that's like, the Matt Damon saga. Yeah. Alessa, how do you feel about it? I, I think there's an entire generation of men for whom that was what they did. I think it's horrible. And I, I think the way that he admitted it so casually in a story about like being a dad speaks to like sort of his self-sanitized sense of things. But I am not surprised is what I will say. Um, yeah. So Matt Damon issued a statement to defend himself. And he said that he told his daughter, quote, the word was used constantly and casually and was even a line of dialogue in a movie of mine as recently as 2003. That same statement went on to say, quote, she was extremely articulate about the extent to which that word would have been painful to some in the LGBTQ plus community. You know, thanks for that, Matt. But I just don't get how in that first interview, it was like he was asking for congratulations in the year of our Lord 2021 for learning this late that the F word is wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. I think the most generous read is that he was trying to like compliment his daughter, which is still like deeply, deeply weird. Yes. On that note, are either of you going to see Matt Damon in this Amanda Knox movie? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Okay. I love true crime, but not stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, me neither. All right. This quote, this next quote comes from a guy that we all like. Here it is. I catch flies with my ass cheeks like a Venus flytrap. He's like um, Pete wait, Zaddy is it right now. No, this is... Oh, no. is it Chris Maloney? Oh, that is Chris Maloney. Maloney. Star of multiple right. Law & Order shows. Chris was profiled in Men's Health magazine this week. And there were some really racy pictures. I've definitely seen the photos more than once. <laughs> Describe to our listeners what the photos of Chris Maloney look like. Um, the, 
it is a very like beachy he's like you know naked kind of um on like workout equipment posing i mean he just like has a ripped body like the zaddyification of christopher maloney is i think in its third act and i'm kind of happy to see it go but um it's been a fun ride i'm kind of over it because i remember back in the day when he was in what was that show on hbo oz and everyone's like ooh, chris maloney and it's like all right, how many new decades can we say that this man is attractive in? Like, we get it. But he <laughs> likes it. He leans into it, right? He, I think that's the only thing that's kind of charming is that he really does love to be objectified in a way that is... <laughs> like, he does love to put himself in very specific gaze in which we don't see a lot of leading men put themselves in this, like, queer, very yeah, feminine gaze. Yeah. There was a moment where on the set of Law & Order, he would stand or squat in a way where his ass cheeks were always just popping. Remember that? Like it was just he's like got, yes, he's got those cakes. <laughs> Shots of butt cheek in his tight pants, and he wore the pants real tight. And it's like you know what you're doing, Chris. <laughs> Who got that point? Hunter. Okay, for sure. So this last one will be for all the marbles. Whoever gets this last quote wins the whole game. Tell me who said this quote. This was this week about the Olympics. They call this equestrian. Oh, that horse is crip walking. Who said that? A celebrity who knows Listen, how to crip walk. I have no idea. Um, oh, wait, was it from the verses? Who is a West Coast rapper who is really identified with crip walking? He's older now. Snoop Dogg? Yes. Snoop Dogg. You didn't see this this week? No, I missed it. I'm not in my Olympics bag. I don't have Peacock. <laughs> Peacock is free, defense. Hunter. Peacock is free. <laughs> Well, there's this really great footage. This week, uh, the geniuses at NBC Sports brought on Kevin Hart and Snoop Dogg to do commentary on Olympic events. The producers have pulled some clips from the Olympics, and we don't know what sport it is or what event it has to do with. And there's this moment where Snoop Dogg and Kevin Hart are commentating on horse dressage, like the horse dancing. Wait, look at that horse. Did you hold Horse crip walking, cuz. You see that? On the set. <laughs> Kevin Hart can't hold it together. He's about to collapse laughing. And then they go on this extended riff about how it's really unfair that if the horse does all that dancing, all that sea walking, that the metal goes to the human and not to the horse. Which should be changed. And I was like, you know what? You're right. This was the best sports commentary I've ever heard in my life, Snoop Dogg. Thank you. That's good. Right? It was good. Uh, We must give credit where credit is due. That footage came from Peacock, NBC's streaming service. It was one of the many ways you could watch the Olympics just go around. It was on NBC primetime, also on NBCSports.com. And in spite of so many ways to watch the Olympics, I got to admit, I've watched almost none of it. Have y'all been watching? I watched some gymnastics and some swimming. Yeah. I'm not a sports girl at all. I mean, I, I watched the World Cup. Well, that's a that's sport. It. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most dismayed. That's true. <laughs> I will say if J-Lo and Ben Affleck and Snoop Dogg are more involved in the next Olympics, I'll watch all of it. What would they do? Oh, I could see Ben Affleck directing the opening ceremonies. And the headliners for that opening ceremony are J-Lo and Snoop Dogg. Didn't she do the opening for the Women's Soccer Cup? Let's, let's, let's Get, get loud. loud. Yes. Oh my God, yes. can we roll the break on Let's Get Loud, production team? Please say yes. It's going to be so fun. Oh, I love that. Closing on Let's Get Loud. How beautiful. 
Uh, Hunter, Alessa, thank you both uh, for being here to talk about J-Lo and everything else. And as always, thank you, J-Lo. Yes, thank you, J-Lo. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. This is Pax Bobro in Augusta, Georgia. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my youngest son, Galen, discovered that he loves rowing and joined the Augusta Rowing Club. And he has been going at 7 a.m. every morning and loving it. Hi, Sam. It's John Anthony from New York. The best thing to happen to me this week was gathering the people I love most in the world to celebrate the completion of my first queer young adult graphic novel. This is Win Win in Dallas, Texas. The best thing that happened to me this week is I sold my first short story. Someone is paying for my words. Hi, Sam. This is Matthew calling in from Denver. The best thing that happened to me this week, and really this year, is that on Sunday, I got to see my twin sister Megan get married on top of a mountain to the love of her life, Jake, who I'm so excited to now call my brother-in-law. Hi, Sam. This is Rianne A.G. And the best thing that happened to me this week just happened. Um, My cat, Ember, is queening, and she's due at the end of August, beginning of September. And I just felt the kitten's kick as I was petting her. Hope this makes your day because it just made mine. Okay, love your show. Thank you. Goodbye. Your show is wonderful. Thank you for everything you do with the show. Thanks for the podcast. I love the work that you do. Love the show. Bye. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard there Rianne, Matthew, Win Win, John Anthony, and Pax. Listeners, don't forget, you can send us the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Liam McBain. Our intern is Manuela Lopez-Restrepo. We had engineering support from Brian Jarbo and Gilly Moon. Our fearless editor this week is Mathani Maturi. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.